I think a lot of what you are seeing happening is very much in the interests of the two major powers driving the BRICS, which uh, China and Russia. You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board. Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives, a signature series by the Conference Board. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at a range of subjects that matter most to business leaders. I'm Steve Odlin, and the host of this podcast series. And in today's conversation, we're going to take a look at the BRICS. That's an acronym standing for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. We're going to talk first about the group from a geopolitical perspective, and then after that, we'll talk about the economic impact of the bloc. Joining me today are two experts from the conference board, Lori Murray, president of the Committee for Economic Development, which is the public policy center of the conference board, and Dana Peterson, the head of our economy, strategy, and finance center, and also our chief economist at the conference board. Dana and Lori, welcome. Hi, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Okay, Lori, let's start with you on the geopolitical impact of the BRICS, but let us, maybe you could start by just saying, what are they? Is this a formal pack or some sort of informal gathering? And what are their commitments to each other? So, Steve, it's not a formal pack. Uh, it's not a treaty organization. It's an informal pack. It doesn't have a secretariat. And to understand what the BRICS are today and what they're becoming, you really need to understand their origins. Uh, this was very much driven by Putin. Uh, and it was on the uh, uh, sidelines of the UN. There was a first meeting in 2006 on the sidelines of the G8. Uh, there was a second informal meeting as, uh, and the idea of the BRICS was being formulated. And remember, put it in the context of what was happening in, in uh, great power relations. Uh, China was developing as a very strong economy rapidly, but Russia, Putin, in 2007 gave his very now infamous Munich security speech, conference speech, where he really blasted the U.S. for its uh, hyper-dominance of the global economy uh, and its irresponsible and uh, hyper-use of force. And within that context, he was very interested in developing a counter to the G7, even though he had become was becoming part of the G8. So understand the BRICS as a counter to Western U.S. dominance, both geopolitically and economically, to have a counter block. And it started out as the BRIC, so B-R-I-C, and, and added South Africa, what, a few years later, I think 2010, right? Right. Um, and, and so the group has been fairly static since then. But it, but as you said, it's not a formal group, but what do they do together? Is it just a trading group or is are there any military alliances? Well, it started with the uh, meetings of the uh, foreign and economic ministers and then became uh, in 2009 when they had their first summit in Russia, uh, a meeting of the heads of Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And then, as, as you mentioned, uh, South Africa, a couple of years later, becomes a member as well. Uh, so they they meet every year. It's, it, I, I think the best analogy is, is comparing it to the G7. Okay, but the G7 has formal trade pacts, right? Well, and among the among the BRICS and now the expanded BRICS, trade is a very important piece of what what is happening uh, in their relations. And so, having trade relations is is a critical piece of this. The other really critical component of what their objectives are, which fits into this 
West U.S. dominance of the global economy uh, was uh, is actually the U.S. the dominance of the U.S. dollar and the control of the major financial global financial institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, uh, by the U.S. and the West, and reforming those institutions. And, and so, even though the BRICS have not thought of themselves or referred to themselves as a military alliance, we do see activity in the last couple of years with Russia and China in particular, referring to each other as best friends and India kind of thrown in there. And so does it look to you, and now you've got this, this uh, summit that may be coming up, including North Korea. Does it look to you like the BRICS is expanding to become a military alliance? It was always, uh, it always has been uh, a geopolitical alliance, a diplomatic alliance. And so embedded in that is uh, uh, security concerns and common approach to security, global security issues. And as I mentioned, uh, one of Putin's major gripes with the U.S. and the West was the uh, U.S. use of force, as he strongly criticized in 2007 at the Munich Security Conference. So that is a piece of it. You, it really is a geopolitical, geoeconomic organization. And you can't, the geopolitical is really, I think, a chapeau. Okay. Now, recently there's been talk of expanding the BRICS. Uh, I think we've got, what, up to 40 different countries expressing some interest in this. How did that come about and where do you think it's going? So the obviously the rise of China as a major economic power, the second largest economy, uh, a major player in trade, obviously, is key to this. And so you have uh, the developing nations uh, really interested in, in expanding their economies uh, and trading with China. And so that's a propellant of interest in, in becoming a member of the BRICS. And as you mentioned, there are 40 countries that uh, have expressed interest. 20, about over 20 of them have actually formally approached the BRICS. And just recently at, in their latest summit, of the BRICS, uh, they accepted six new members will become members in 2024, and that's Argentina, Egypt, e Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. A really significant group of nations, particularly in the global south, uh, rising powers uh, regionally. So, so a significant additional component to the BRICS. Yeah, now many of these African nations were recipients or participants in the Belt and Road Initiative from China, right? So is 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 that group just more of a of an alliance, uh, you know, expanding along that initiative? Well, it's also important to uh, uh, remember that as part of the BRICS, they they actually did set up the original BRICS did set up uh, alternative uh, financial institutions. I mean, there was real concern about reform of these institutions and the dominance of the U.S. and the West. And they and the BRICS set up the New Development Bank, for example, to help fund development. That's another major reason why countries are are interested in approaching the BRICS for membership. So the purpose of expansion is what in your mind? Well, it's interesting because China is very interested in expansion. And uh, so uh, it helps China, just as with Belt and Road and its other initiatives, it helps China expand and extend uh, and what Xi Jinping has called its historic expansion of BRICS, uh, extend its, its geopolitical uh, and geoeconomic dominance uh, or inroads into uh, particularly the U.S. and the West dominance, and especially in terms of the role of the dollar. So if I understand 
your history lesson, you're saying that this initiated, this was initiated by Russia, but the expansion seems to be perpetuated by China. Interesting switch there. Well, and look what happened to Russia and China since uh, 2006. I mean, Russia was, as opposed to China, Russia was actually part of, uh, become part of the G- G8. Uh, it was a democratic nation. It was moving, Putin came into power in 2000, moving very, moving away from that and becoming an antagonistic power uh, gradually over the years. And then, of course, China's development far outpaced uh, any uh, uh, growth that was happening in Russia, although it still uh, was then and continues to be now a major energy pow- power and a major energy force in, in, in terms of global economics and global politics. So on one hand, the BRICS is sort of a, a mirror or an answer to the G7. G- it sees itself that way. I mean, it's transparent that, it's, that it actually sees itself as a counterforce to the G7. Well, but most recently, it just sounds like they're trying to become a counterforce to NATO. Or to G20. Uh, so the G7 really sets the agenda for the G20. And a number of these countries, obviously, are also part of the G20. And the G7 sets the agenda, works on the agenda for the G20. Now you have BRICS as a counter to uh, setting the gender, the agenda for the Global South and the G20. Well, but if they are... If they do devolve into a military alliance, you've got a lot of U.S. allies in that group, in the expanding group of BRICS. How does that work its way out? Well, so I think, uh, Steve, you just hit one of the most fascinating things about this expansion. And I think the most interesting countries uh, in the BRICS, obviously, is India. And there was a significant development during this period of expansion and the summit uh, where India and China actually uh, diffused uh, some of the tension and seemed to be on the cusp of reaching an agreement on what's happening on their contested border and the the, uh, drawback possibly of of the, the military force and troops. So, but India is definitely on the one hand straddling uh, these blocks uh, the U.S., China, Russia, straddling them. On the other hand, it is really positioning itself as a, a major country and a, and a major determinant of the direction of uh, the future of global politics and uh, geoeconomics, uh, which is fascinating. But I also want to point out the two other, I think, really interesting developments with this expansion. And that is really looking at the Middle East, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, by by becoming a member of the BRICS, is also really evolving rather quickly out of this isolation period that it had uh, after its killing of the Washington Post journalist in its embassy, uh, the U.S., the Biden administration, uh, putting human rights at the forefront of our agenda with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia is managing to uh, really balance itself out of that. And, and becoming a member of the BRICS is really important and really helpful in terms of uh, its evolution. Iran, Iran completely isolated as a pariah globally, economically, uh, is now a member of the BRICS. And this also helps China's role in terms of global diplomacy because China negotiated a detente between Iran and Saudi Arabia by bringing Iran into a global economic coalition is actually placing Iran back into uh, the global economy. 
and and it still remains a pariah state to the U.S. and the West. So really fascinating there. And then, of course, Egypt. Egypt, which is a longstanding ally of the U.S., is also a new member of the BRICS. Uh, so really interesting dynamics happening below the level of great power politics of Russia, China, the U.S., really interesting dynamics in terms of the next tier of powers and and how they are uh, maneuvering around this divide that's happening in the in the uh, geopolitical and economic economy. Uh, yeah, and, and, and you just have to look at a map to say that, okay, what they're trying to do is isolate the West because you're taking the border countries, certainly you, you take the Middle East out of it, and then you've got Northern Africa, and of course, you know, you've got all the Sub-Saharan Africa uh, countries that are that are waiting in line. And then you picked off the largest country in South America, in Brazil. So, I, I mean, you know, where does this stop? You you move all the way up to the U.S. border from the south and the European border from their south. And what does that leave? Right. So it's very strategic. I do think it's historic for different reasons than uh, Xi Jinping has called it historic. It's, a, it's a, an important turning point. And I also just want to come back to uh, the dominance of the dollar in the global economy. We have been seeing major shifts, uh, particularly since the uh, two um, SWIFT sanctions by kicking Iran out uh, and then now obviously kicking Russia out. Uh, it has really provided momentum for alternative currencies. And that the BRICS came together from at their founding and created a, an alternative basket of currencies. I don't think the basket of currencies is going to be what succeeds, but what you see playing a role here is that among the BRIC powers, uh, member countries, uh, a willingness, uh, even more of a willingness or uh, another venue to promote trading in local currencies, rupees, yuan, and and really moving away from uh, the dollar and trade. And, uh, you know, India just made uh, had a major agreement in, in, to use rupees in, in one of their major trade agreements. And so you're seeing this chipping away of the uh, dominance of the dollar. We've been discussing the geopolitical implication of the BRICS. After a short break, we're going to discuss the economic impact. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you ready to transform your business and stay ahead of the competition? Artificial intelligence is quietly reshaping the global economy, optimizing manufacturing processes, and transforming how users interact with popular platforms. Harnessing the power of AI can exponentially enhance your business's effectiveness and efficiency. However, navigating the risks associated with this transformative technology is critical. Privacy, integrity, the economy, and humanity are all at stake. That's why the Conference Board is your go-to resource for the expertise and foresight you need to leverage AI to its fullest potential and make strategic moves that propel your business forward. Unlock the possibilities AI offers your business. Visit tcb.org slash AI today to access trusted insights for what's ahead and guidance on navigating the AI transformation. Welcome back to CEO Perspectives. I'm your host, Steve Odlin from the Conference Board, and I'm joined today by Dr. Lori Murray and Dana Peterson from the Conference Board. Okay, Dana, let's turn to you as the uh, Conference Board's chief economist Economically, where does this brick pack stand today and what will they become with the expansion? Sure. Well, as Lori said, the BRICs do see themselves as a counterpoint to the group of seven. And so 
that's very readily apparent when you look at the new division of GDP globally, as well as trade amongst these different groups. And so that certainly that'll provide uh, benefits for the members of the group, especially the ones that are uh, being added, but it also creates geopolitical risks in terms of the amount of sway they may hold over uh, key commodities, including energy and food and rare earths. And then also uh, the fact that you have a number of economies with, and, and Lori can talk more about this later, a number of economies with either access to nuclear weapons or those aspirations that could also be paired with their economic power to influence world events. With all that, it's going to have implications for businesses if suddenly businesses have to think about what are the new rules of operation, rules of engagement with another uh, economic group, even though they're somewhat informal, and also if there's trade in different currencies. So I think this is going to be quite material, um, not only economically speaking, but also for business operations. Okay, so if you think about the BRICS in terms of its collective GDP versus the G7, I guess because you have mm-hmm. to take you have to take uh, Russia out of it. How the how do the relative sizes compare? Sure. So BRICS right now um, represents thirty two percent of global GDP. That's compared to thirty percent for the group of seven. But if you add in the expansion economies, uh, the six of them. It adds another 5%. So that would place BRICS at 37% of global GDP compared to 30% for the group seven. And then the remainder would be 33% for the rest of the world. So that's really significant. And also it it would increase the BRICS, we'll call them BRICS plus, it would increase their share of global trade. So right now, BRICS alone, if you add up nominal imports and exports is about 19% of global trade. And so the BRICS entrance would add another 3%. So that's 21% compared to 31% for the group of seven and then 47% for the rest of the world. So that's a really big chunk of trade and GDP. So this is with one of the goals is to increase the share of GDP that they have a say over and control over, then they would certainly accomplish that with, with adding on the expansion economies. Okay, so that's that's the relative scale. Now, the mix is important here. Looking at the production and the mix of goods coming out of the BRICS versus the rest of the world, do you see a possibility that the BRICS could become a standalone, BRICS plus could be a standalone trading block and, and exist without trading with the rest of the world? Certainly, that is that is a potential, especially if other economies are forced to choose, right? So either you operate with the U.S. and its allies in the Group Seven, plus some of that other rest of the world, which is includes Australia and New Zealand, et cetera, or you have to pair up with the BRICS Plus group. And indeed, when you look at the big BRICS Plus group, you have an extraordinary number of producers and exporters of energy. So right now with BRICS, you have Russia and Brazil produce quite a bit of oil. They have some of the biggest oil reserves on the planet. But then you're adding Saudi Arabia, who's second in the world after Venezuela, and Iran, who's third, and then the UAE, which is in the top 10. 
So you're concentrating a lot of oil exporters. Same thing with natural gas, where Russia is the biggest, has the biggest natural gas reserves. And then you add in Iran, which has the second largest reserves, and Saudi Arabia and the UAE also in the top 10, along with China. So you're really concentrating energy production, energy reserves, and also production, where you'd have, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six out of BRICS Plus being in the top 20 or so energy producers. And then in terms of the consumption, you have China, Brazil, Egypt, Argentina, and Ethiopia, which are among the top 10 or 15, top 20 or 25 economies that consume energy. So it certainly is the case that these economies, plus others that might partner with them, could exist and have their own world of trading outside of the G7 and other Western democratic economies. Okay, that's really interesting because energy is is obviously a critical part of uh, you know of any economy. Food's pretty important too, though. So as you think about food production versus consumption, can they exist on their own and feed themselves? In terms of food production, yes. So potentially, we'll put it this way, because for example, India is a, a tremendous producer of food, but they don't necessarily export it. Right. But you do have Russia, which is a major exporter of food. China also produces a lot of food, but they don't necessarily export a lot of it. So having Russia in the mix is super important. And, and as we know right now, Russia is refusing to re-enter the grain deal that it had with Turkey and Ukraine to, to ship grain out of the Black Sea area to the rest of the world. And it is affecting MENA, Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. So having bringing in some of those other economies that are big producers of food, or at least big demanders of food, helps. BRICS have that power. And another thing I'd like to talk about is rare earths. So in the upcoming straight talk, I have a table here that lists the four main rare earths that go into battery making, lithium, nickel, cobalt, and manganese. And when I look at this, BRICS and BRICS expansion are all over the place. They are huge producers and exporters of rare earths. So they could potentially not only corner the market in some cases, but control the market in global exports of rare earths, putting other economies um, that are looking to engage in the energy transition, the greening of the global economy at risk, certainly if they cannot gain access to those rare earths. So that's another piece. So it's energy, food, rare earths that BRICS will have greater say over globally. And if you were a conspiracy theorist and, and you thought all of this was some part of, part of some master plan, you could conclude that Russia's attempt to take over Ukraine, it could lock in that incredible amount of food production and, you know, export, which, you know, a lot of which is going to Europe, but, but in order to supply the expanded BRICS flock. My, am I, have I gone off the deep end on this? I think it, you know, it certainly is something that, that I don't think you're going off the deep end. And it certainly is something that may come into the calculation. I mean, Lori can explain the history of this, but certainly, you know, Russia sees Ukraine as part of historical Europe, but it certainly is beneficial that yes, Ukraine is part of the global breadbasket and gaining control over that is important. The one counterpoint to that is the U.S. is a tremendous producer and exporter of food. In that sense, 
you'd still have a lot of other economies that are not only dependent, not that that would not only be dependent upon bricks for food, but would also be dependent upon the U.S. So again, having to choose sides. Now, economies like India are huge, right? And India is going to be the future for the next decade. Um, but not every economy has that kind of clout economically or even politically to be able to forge its own path like an India or Saudi Arabia. And so I see this as a potential for use of economic power to execute on political and geopolitical motives. Another big chunk of uh, an economy is the military complex, the industrial military complex. Not, just thinking about it economically, not necessarily geopolitically, but can they can they supply themselves and, and act as a pack from a military supply perspective? I'm going to throw out something and then turn it back over to Lori. I would suggest that the answer is probably no, because when we think about everything, it's becoming more high tech. And one of the industrial policies that the U.S. is engaging in vis-a-vis China is over high technology, in particular high-end chips. And so, and the reason why the U.S. is not uh, is banning exports to China is for national security reasons, for fear that those materials might be used to create weaponry. So, I would imagine that it's it's not necessarily the case that you know these economies can have all the materials. But certainly when you look at the BRICS plus the expansion, you do have a number of economies that have nuclear weapons and also Iran, which has aspirations. So to that extent, in terms of having a nuclear conflict, absolutely, you know, BRICS is certainly self-sufficient. But in terms of making their other military aspects more high-tech, you do need Europe and you need the United States. Lori? Okay, so Lori, again, if I'm a conspiracy theorist it, and you follow what Dana just said, the missing piece is advanced chips. And that's all sitting in Taiwan right now. 90% of the world's advanced chip production is in Taiwan. Is this all some part of a master plot uh, from, from the BRICS to you know, to take Ukraine and Taiwan, and now you've got a complete package. So Steve, one man's conspiracy theorist is another man's strategic analyst. And so if you look at it in terms of um, analyzing it strategically, I think a lot of what you are seeing happening is very much in the interests of the two major powers driving the BRICS, which uh, China and Russia. China needs energy. You see that in the expansion, uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, they need, and fossil fuel energy. And Russia uh, needs to be an exporter of food because of the Ukraine crisis and the sanctions. And you see that in the other countries, Ethiopia, uh, you know, the basket of countries that really are importers of food. Uh, so you see the strategic plan playing out. And and on the defense side, I would add that before we get to the, which Dana's absolutely right on, on high tech, the need for chips that at the center of this and what you just asked, I do want to point out that both China and Russia, and particularly Russia, both need export markets for their military equipment and they, and they need imports. And you see uh, Iran playing a very important role in terms of drones and, and its relationship and supplying that to, to Russia, as well as a number of these countries actually uh, being very important. 
for Russian and exports on 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 their on military sales. So, you know, you see this all playing out under this very interesting, uh, you know, BRIC summit that happened. But to your point and and Dan's point about uh, chips and advanced technologies, yes, it's this is the this is economic warfare now. Uh, we're not calling it that. Uh, we're isolating it to national security concerns about uh, high-end technology and military development, but that you cannot separate economic development from military development in terms of chips. It's it's key to both. It's the heartbeat of, of, of the 21st century economy. It's the heartbeat of 21st century military capability. And uh, we are doing a, there, there is a dividing line being created. And as you said, uh, Steve, Taiwan is at the uh, nexus of this problem. That's where our advanced chips come from. And 90% of the advanced chips come out of Taiwan. It's just, it's its focal point in this 21st century struggle is very clear. Okay. And, and so, Lori, last question. And then, Dana, I'll give you the last word. What is all this, what ramifications does this bifurcation of the globe have on, on the United Nations, if any? So, Steve, what, what's interesting is that uh, this all really came out of reform of the international institutions and the formation of the BRICS. And so the UN is really, uh, you know, one of those institutions where, where reform is being demanded. What's fascinating, though, is that some of these countries, particularly uh, or among these countries, they have different roles and different power positions in the UN, such as India is much more powerful in the UN than some of the other countries. Uh, but reform is key to that. But there's also right now what's interesting and fascinating to watch is, is what's going to happen on these critical votes, particularly as far as Ukraine is concerned. You know, right now you have Argentina, Egypt, uh, and Saudi Arabia and the UAE all voting against uh, Russia, particularly in term, as far as it's, it's uh, saying that it has to leave Ukraine, the uh, resolution that said it should leave Ukraine and recognizing Ukraine's sovereignty. And it'll be interesting and fascinating to see what happens to those votes as, as uh, BRICS evolves and, and uh, strengthens. Dana, last word? Yes. And, and just bringing this down to the corporate level, I think that this is has the potential to create even greater polarization. And, you know, to Lori's point, in the extreme, you know, it, it's a new Cold War era. And certainly if you're a business, it raises the cost of doing things, and especially if you have to think about different currencies to transact business in. And even though the the dollar is still the world's reserve currency, we do know that there are efforts to erode that status. And certainly when we look at the U.S. dollar uh, in currency usage for uh, not only transactions, but also debt issuance and and banking claims, et cetera, the U.S. dollar has lost some of its luster over the last, uh, at least since 2016. And so, you know, if you're a multinational and you have to deal with all these new dividing lines in terms of economic blocks, then it certainly, again, raises the cost of doing business, but it also risks stranded assets, right? We just look at what's happening to many businesses who were invested in, in Russia and they had to divest or they're attempting to do so at this point. So, you know, I know that some of our, our colleagues around the world may not see this as seriously as someone from a U.S. perspective, but just thinking about a business in a multinational, I think this is something that should be on their radar as something to watch and also to strategize around. Dana Peterson and Dr. Lori Esposito-Murray, thanks for joining us today. 
Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And thanks to all of you for listening in to CEO Perspectives. Every week, I'll be joined by a prominent thought leader to provide insights on the issues of our time. We'll cover the leading topics in economics, geopolitics, public policy, and more. Please share CEO Perspectives with all of your colleagues around the world. I know they're going to want to listen. I'm Steve Odlin, and this series has been brought to you by the Conference Board. You have been listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board.